Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chrono Scheming Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me at Nico Action on Twitter and Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and the show at X'sForPodcast.com and on all your favorite socials. Today, we kick off another Modern Marvels, but it's not just any Modern Marvels. Today coincides with the release of this year's X-Men Hellfire Gala One-Shot, which is sort of the sum totality of the gala, which leads directly into, you know, the big summer crossover with the Eternal and the Avengers, which also saw a major release today in the form of an Eternals one-shot. And it's been so exciting building up to this with covering Jason Aaron's Avengers and Eternals. And we're really hoping that this whole thing comes together really beautifully, despite a number of crazy shipping delays. So today it's so great that we're getting out three bits of coverage that have been done over the last couple of weeks that just due to scheduling things, haven't seen their release yet and are definitely key things to listen to before the gala. We're going to kick things off with the most recent issue of X-Force before moving over to X-Men Red number four and then closing things out with the final issue of Jerry Duggan's X-Men before the gala. So here is X-Force number 29. We hope you guys enjoy the experience and don't forget to check us out over on Twitter at X's for podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, the show where Quentin Quire, I guess, is never going to appear again. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Josh. You can find me on Twitter at AsleepAtTheWheel, W-E-I-L, and AsleepAtTheWheel.com. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And I'm Jonah, and you can find me demolishing myself from all internet slash psychic records over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah, that's P-E-A-K, and we hope you survive this experience. Now, I could make a Quentin Quire joke here. That's too obvious. So let's say we hope you survive this experience, unlike those bunch of mutants who got their heads eaten off by the Cerebro helmet. Yeah, yeah. We're here to talk about X-Force number 29, Monster Island, by the now stable team of Benjamin Percy and Robert Gill. This is their first or second full arc together, and it feels like a really tight fit where the writing and the art really gel together. We have consistent and beautiful colors from Guru FX. We have letters by VC's Joe Caramagna, Tom Muller getting some assist from Jay Bowen uh, for collaborative design work. We have a number of variant covers. However, our team favorite, Joshua Kassara, is contributing a regular cover with Dean White. Now, the course of this issue gives us the story of how Cerebrax, the Krakoan Cerebro helmet fusion, is literally chomping up mutants like popcorn, and some of our favorite mutants work together to defeat it. And then Quentin Quire ceases to exist except in our hearts and minds, and I guess our back issue boxes. Every issue of 
X Force, even though I know better. I'm like I'm like a little kid checking to see if Josh Kasara's name is going to be in the art credits, even though I know it's not. I'm, I'm not I'm not over the pain yet. That's how I felt. Speaking of like legendary runs where an artist gets more or less subbed out, I think Nick Bradshaw's work on Wolverine and the X Men sort of defines my understanding of how energetically playful and yet competently emotional a comic can be with what I'm going to call kind of bara chunky line art. And it was just a really great era. And then when all of a sudden you stopped seeing him come on the book and he was still doing so many of the covers, it made me question what I would rather. The sort of bait and switch of the cover artist you want with a very good interior artist who maybe isn't who you came for or endless delays to keep a singular artist on a title. And I would love to kick this conversation off with that question. Do you guys miss Joshua Kassara and feel misled by the covers or is Robert Gill giving you everything you need to feel fulfilled? Mom's new boyfriend Robert Gill is really nice, but no matter how many times he takes me out for ice cream, I still miss Josh Kassara. I am on the other end of the spectrum. I love Josh Kassara's art. It did not work for me in X-Force, primarily because there's an abstract quality to it that I enjoy and even could enjoy in like the general idea of an X-Force book. But because I so often felt unclear about what was going on in X-Force and what the point of X-Force was and what it was driving towards, I often just found that I wanted... A little bit closer to house style art, something that's a little more get in and do the the shooty actiony stuff artwork. That just kind of is X Force to me, and I feel like right now I don't love the bait and switch covers. I do think it's a little weird that we have this artist who became iconic to the run, and even though it wouldn't be my preference, I don't think there's anything like wrong with it. I just kind of had a different vision for how the art would be, but I think it's weird to keep him on the covers and then have an artist on who. Their styles are comparable. They're definitely in the same kind of slice of pie when you divide up sort of how you do go about doing Marvel books. But they're different enough that it's obviously not the same person. And that to me is just a little bit jarring. But right now I'm a little happier with especially the cleanness of a lot of the line work. Just there's something about it that just kind of works in my head in terms of making this all make a little bit more sense to me when at all times I just feel like I don't get what's going on with X-Force. Well, and, and let's be fair, the Gil and Kassara, their um, faces, their kind of body proportions, some of the basics are very comparable, comparable yeah. enough to make it a smooth fit. Yeah. But the extreme body horror monster feature things that Kassara was just feasting on, like there are few artists out there today that, that can or, or are able to match him on that in terms of just like the sheer spectacle of what he was doing. I think you're right about that for sure. Where Josh talked about, you know, not minding mom's new boyfriend, but kind of missing, you know, dad. It's a very sad metaphor if you really think about it. I guess I would be like the ambivalent child where I don't particularly care in the sense that neither art really does anything spectacular for me. I don't dislike it. There's nothing, there's absolutely nothing 
wrong with any of the art in this book. I don't have any of those, like, you know, special tingly feelings, you know, when you get with like someone that you really like. I don't mind this art. However, I do think I have to echo the sentiment that Kasara leaned a lot more into the horror and Cronenberg body elements that I think we've come to associate with X-Force, which is weird because if X-Force is a book about the mutant CIA, there's a lot of stuff about body horror in these books. And I wonder if that echoes the real CIA. Are there any CIA members in the chat? Please let us know. Hi, Tom King. I think going forward, I have no problem with this. I will appreciate this art and I will, you know, find things I will enjoy and love about it. The previous art was nicer in the sense that they really went for really reaching for that body horror and really kind of pushing those artistic bounds of like, what can you kind of get away with in this book without it coming across of like, eh, maybe we need to dial this back. Josh Kassara art at some point around issue like 14, like low teenish, this book stopped being the Ben Percy book for me and started being the Josh Kassara book. This was a Josh Kassara spotlight book for me that Ben Percy was writing. And now I would say that the combination of the X-Force annual written by Nadia Shamas and it not being a Kassara book anymore has really made it feel more like a Percy book to me. I think I have having that one issue where the voices were just a little off because it wasn't the one writer I was used to. Nothing against Nadia Shamas. I love Nadia Shamas's work on other titles, but it, it, I think I said in that episode, the voices just, they were not as consistent as they would be on a title that has been written by the same writer every issue. I really have more of an appreciation for Percy's voice in this and this being his book. And, and I think that also pairs with the fact that the writing now is at either equal or greater, like gets to kind of flex against the art again. And I like that we're talking about the idea of Ben Percy as a writer, because one of the things I think that Benjamin Percy brings to his writing, as we do cover a number of his titles here, whether it's his work on the directly connected Wolverine or the a little bit more spiritually connected, very much uh, spiritual successor to Preacher, current run of Ghost Rider, and the fact that Benjamin Percy is becoming more and more known for his novels, there is a benefit to the fact that Ben Percy sinks into the psychology of a character in a way that an artist really needs to connect with. I think throughout his early X-Force, one of the things that Benjamin Percy showed was a versatility of character. While I maybe didn't always want to focus on the character we were focusing on at the time, I feel that Joshua Kassara's art at all points matched the pitch of the character focused on in X-Force. One of the things that I'm seeing Robert Gill able to provide a little bit more readily in this title for my money is a balanced sense of all of these characters in page space. I think our favorite phrase on this show anymore is page and panel economy. And I feel Robert Gill is creating a visual narrative that matches Benjamin Percy's understanding of how to share page space. That's a fantastic point. I hadn't thought of it that way until you brought it up, but it absolutely, this issue felt, I'd say like one of the most balanced issues in terms of who was the the lead or the amount of panel time that characters got in terms of the amount of space that we saw Sage and Omega Red taking up, the amount of space that Wolverine took up, Quentin's role, and not always just oversizing and making Wolverine the largest, ironically, the largest character in the panel. You know, we saw Domino getting featured and um, there was a great balance to it that we definitely did not have with Kassara. And it, it reminds me when you look at the retrospectives on like the early Claremont run, you know, when you go from the switch from Cockrum to Burn, how 
how, you know, Claremont says that like he was doing nothing different, but everyone goes, wow, it went from being so Nightcrawler heavy to Wolverine heavy. Claremont's scripts didn't change, just the artists wanted to focus feature characters in panel changed and hey, look, now Wolverine's the biggest character in the book. So yeah, like artists have a huge contribution into that and uh, Gil's definitely doing a much better job of making this feel like a balanced team instead of a series of solo shots. And Gil does a great job of depicting two characters in panels and on a page and making those interactions feel really important just by the way the characters are sized and featured and gone from page to page. A lot of this book is single character and double character interactions with a few shots like in a few action shots interspersed you'll see three. You rarely see more than that and it's usually just a panel or two. It's a lot of really intentional focus on more minimal amounts of people. I also respect Percy's scripts for not overloading the story with a lot of characters. It's really interesting in this era, you know, to contrast this with a book like Knights of X, which is overstuffed in a way I really enjoy. And I'm just constantly slack-jawed by Bob Quinn's ability to depict all of the characters on page at once and make it feel like I can kind of stop and look at any one of them and feel very confident that I understand what they're doing and why they're in that particular panel and I get a flow of the action. This works for me too in a much different style where I don't really actually have to stop as much and kind of pick apart each panel and really observe everything. You get a really good idea of everything that's happening from a bird's eye view because it is such a strong focus on one, two, maybe in a really action heavy panel, three characters, but they all get a chance to shine and the script makes sure that they do as well. And the thing that a different artist also allows for on a title is a new expression of color. I live for comic color. Color is something that I think is as important as line work. Of course, the design of a black and white comic is very different. The design of a black and white comic involves inking shadow and filling out space in a different way such that it creates all of the color context you need in a black and white situation is one of the reasons that perhaps cross hatching looks a little bit rougher on well-colored books. And I think one of the things that Guru FX is able to explore and experiment with under Robert Gill's pencils is a softer attitude in the line work, which allows for a little bit more interplay of perhaps that a little bit more um, early Krakoan brightness. There's definitely a little bit more Skittles than there is M&Ms to the coloring here. And I think the coloring manages to make this story a little bit warmer. I myself think Cerebrax is a sort of tread idea. Of course, tread ideas are tropes for a reason. They are consistent ideas that people enjoy. But I didn't need like a third or fourth evil sentience going on right now unless it directly does build toward the robot mutant war. Perhaps this could have been better served on a bigger scale than Lives and Deaths of Wolverine, which felt a little bit like it didn't need the same stage as thousands of robots becoming sentient. But I don't know. I really thought the colors made what could have been a slightly less warm and a bit more drab story feel a lot more powerful. And I wonder how you guys feel about colors as they relate to not just this story, but the general narrative of the warm colors of Krakoa have led to a warmer sense of emotion in the X-Men. I thought the color 
lettering was done really nice. I don't know if the scripts called for this to be at evening or night the way it was, but the contrast, especially on the Quentin Choir scenes with pink against evening blues, the greens for the sage transitions were, it's a very pretty book. It has a color palette that I don't think is too divorced from, you know, what Marte Gracia has kind of set the standard as, but the colors are very pretty in this book. It was very easy to look at. The only kind of negative criticism that I have of this book is, you know, just on the idea of Cerebrax. And like you said, if this goes on to play into the, you know, the mutant machine war in the future, that would be great as like a seeding thing. But man, having X lives and X deaths, and then this and the danger with the Cerebro helmet looking head, having like three Cerebro helmet villainous kind of on three straight Percy arc stories feels like a lot. It's definitely taken any of the kind of awe or the luster off of it for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree about uh, what's going on with machines right now. I'm along for the ride because I did judge a little too harshly with the original runs of Wolverine and X-Force and just feeling like I didn't know where they were going and I wasn't confident that I would be satisfied with it. I didn't still don't really love that like for months at a time I was just kind of not sure what was going on but in the end it did all resolve really nicely and it reads great in trade and so I can totally believe that at the end of the day I'll get into whatever's here but right now it does feel like uh, a lot of the same beats over and over again in an odd way. I will say the thing that really stuck out for me in terms of color with this book is the feeling of bioluminescence playing out amongst most especially Quentin's pinks and the reds from Cerebrax. And I know the reds are kind of electronically generated, but when you get into the way that it's fusing with Krakoa itself, there's a very biological component to it. There's a very wet component to the pink emanation of Quentin's telekinetic power. I very much appreciate that the way that just splashes of red and pink can really contrast with the browns, the blues, the greens that really make Krakoa the all-encompassing land, just that solid rock beneath our feet, and the way that these splashes of bioluminescence can kind of disrupt everything and give a huge sense of uh, the epic battle taking place as we see chunks of the earth get kind of disturbed and ripped apart in order to come to a reckoning with what's happening in the story. I want to give a shout out to something you just said, TK, the red from Cerebrax and also the green when it forms with, you know, the Earth of Krakoa. Those were two very, not satisfying, but pleasant to look at shades of colors for me, where I looked at it and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not supposed to feel happiness, but like, I like those colors. Those colors make me feel nice. And I, on the contrary, I thought, I know it could be because this book takes place at night, so a lot of the colors are not as saturated or as poppy, which is fine, but I do feel like uh, I think the coloring was a slight miss for me because everything felt a little flat. It just felt a little garbled. It didn't really feel like there was enough contrast in certain colors or there wasn't enough being able to play with different sources of lighting to be able to really give me the coloring that I tend to really enjoy. Uh, Nothing really 
stood out to me a lot about the colors. A lot of it felt really muted, and I kind of wish there was a little bit more of exploration of different shades, different hues, and different combinations of contrasting colors next to one another to really help bring the colors to life, because I don't really feel like the colors came to life in this issue, for me at least. And I think that's part of the value of having this sort of wealth of color palette that you have on the X titles right now. That's one of the things we most celebrate on this you know, line, is that the X-Men has created such a wealth of visual identity that we can even have a 20-minute conversation about the art team on a book. Something we talk about a lot is comics, unfortunately, leans very writer-heavy, and not taking the time to recognize the contributions that art makes. You know, Josh, your point about Claremont never changed his scripts, the artist changed, so what was being shown changed is so valuable to understanding why we talk about these stories the way we do. Now, I want to ask a character question. I feel as though when you start talking about potential relationships in comics, you are on a very slippery slope because, you know, romantic entanglement in comics has long benefited male characters at the expense of female characters, has long been the sole provider of page space for female characters, while male characters get to have serious concerns like being a superhero. The idea of giving Sage a love interest makes me very weary. Makes me very, sorry, very wary. Maybe weary. We'll see. But that it's Omega Red. I think I should hate this. But I... Did everyone else get romantic vibes off of that? I didn't pick up any. Oh, I've gotten romantic vibes off of them for issues. And Uh I... Oh, yeah. If it happens, fine. I'm not like... I'm not Thor and the Enchantress against it. But I'm not like... So so hold I'm, on. So I'm, so the two major character developments that Percy came up for with Sage is making her a random spontaneous alcoholic and giving her Omega Red as a love interest. So it's a Russian novel. Apparently. I love the idea of Sage as that person who wants there to be a truly recognizable good that comes out of the evil that they do. It can't just be that they survive. It has to be that they do something better. And they consistently fail to do so, primarily because Beast is the soul-sucking worst. And Sage keeps trying. And I really appreciate that she hasn't given up on Omega Red's redemption as a project. It does veer into I-can-fix-him territory that skeeves me out a little bit if it doesn't play out in the right way. And it just feels increasingly it's not gonna play out in the right way exactly like if it just feels increasingly like there's no way that it's not gonna be either she fixed him like which is not you know that that was even a play in what could be a romantic relationship already even if it turns out like oh he's better it's still that being part of the motivation doesn't it's not good and then if she doesn't fix him it's just like even worse and god forbid somebody be like sage and her disaster relationships remember when she tried to fix omega red it's just more crummy vampires <laughs> see now maybe i i was foolish for seeing this as the first time in x-men history where you know tentacles didn't represent penises but the fact that sage found a new toy that she could send out into the field because she saw her tentacles as usb ports and she could send him out and plug him into fucking anything like that's what i want it to be giddiness, like that's what i saw like i saw just him as like her favorite toy like oh my 
God, I have a Wolverine with USB claws. I so want you to be right. Like, that's what I want it to be. I just, there are times where I th- it feels like, what if? I picked up on the chemistry they're trying to build between the two. I don't know if it's necessarily meant to concretely read as romantic and slash sexual, but I'm not specifically opposed to it. Here's the thing. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but Sage's character, in terms of her sexuality, hasn't typically been explored. And whether that's just because the character she is, it doesn't really, the story never really calls for it and it beca- does become reductive. I do think it's a great thing to explore with proper care in handling and that's true for any color but more specifically for women in comics I think specifically because as Nico pointed out a lot of times women do get reduced to certain roles when they do become romantic with certain partners especially if those partners are the heroes and they themselves either aren't a hero or are heroes themselves it, it becomes very tricky and we don't want to regress back to you know comics of you I do think it's a great topic to to explore now, you know, candle it with care. I also want to echo the sentiment of TK. The I can fix a movement has been done. We're not doing that. Move on. No, a man should not be a terrible person. And then the solution be he finds a woman who fixes him. That's not the role of women. That's not the role of men. We know we're no longer doing that narrative. It works for Quentin. Well, well, and that's the other thing I wanted to get into is regardless of what's happening with Sage and Omega Red, we still have the Stepford Cuckoos and Quentin. And this one is bugging me more and more as it goes on. Did did Phoebe really fix Quentin or was Quentin actually a decent person all along and really, oh no, I think that's the same thing yeah, as fixing yeah, him because yeah. then that's just her just saying you could actually be yourself around me, doesn't have to put on a facade. Never mind. These are the daughters of the White Queen who are now themselves the White Queen and like we left Inferno being like there's something really important happening with the cuckoos and I'm it's fine. Nathan Jean's a meanie. Ugh. This felt very regressive for them. And the Jean line was the one that hit me the most. I, I went through this book Furious. really appreciating Percy's voice on so many of these characters. Like how how comfortable I am with like Wolverine's voice, like that Percy writes him, you know, where he's Quentin's voice has developed. Even Domino, like I had to kind of stop for a second and think about it in comparison to Gail Simone and some other like ones that gave her her lots of agency and you know really liking where a lot of these have come to and then we get the cuckoos and oh my like because first off the cuckoos never hated gene if anything the cuckoos always openly gushed about gene or love gene just to piss off their mom like there thank is thank you them all being gene ooh is so off against and the uh, just that the entire scene with them with Phoebe waffling over Quentin or the going back or the Eugene like it felt very regressive uh see like that I think could maybe work if we're way back in Grant Morrison's new X-Men where the cuckoos are first introduced and they're like ew headmaster Jean because Emma you know took a special interest in that in that point you're like okay that kind of makes it that line makes sense maybe there it doesn't really make sense here honestly the entire attitude about them dating they're much more mature than this like it was a huge step back in terms of character maturity i know that they're younger but they're been through a lot a lot more than a lot of younger x-men i will say and i don't fully understand it was it meant to be the joke of like haha emma and gene still have this rivalry then we're going to use it through their kids but like their kids also dated the cuckoos literally dated cable kid cable like so do they actually hate all of them 
all, all of them, them all of them dated cable like kid cable it is such a weird line that you might th- listeners think why are they harping on it so much but it's these one-liners that that you really get a lot of characterization in singular lines to cherry pick and to talk about this line does not make any sense they could not like quentin that's absolutely fine but the line about gene was weird and their whole attitude about phoebe potentially just dating someone by herself was really weird as well and just none of this is some of the writing and dialogue for them definitely i feel like does not work but their presence and function in this book you could convince me if they were appearing in immortal x-men for instance helping emma out and reckoning with the thing that destiny told them if they were in marauders doing emma's job and marauders wasn't in space whatever if they were somewhere else being the cuckoos that we have been promised since Inferno, something like this would feel more like, oh, of course they're there. They had a thing with Quentin and there's something happening. And, you know, the idea that they're going to a party feels very teen. Like some of this could work for me, but we haven't seen them anywhere. And it does go to this idea that like romantic relationships are really there for the male character and what this does for Quentin, how he has developed and changed and worked through his rejection and become the hero he wants to be. Okay that's all great whatever but now it kind of makes the cuckoo seem like like ditzy and there's one of them that maybe is simping too hard and how does it just this is so beneath the groundwork that has been laid for them the last time we saw them they were explicitly in text putting their sororal relationships above romantic relationships they were putting the betterment of themselves and the value that they had together as a collective over their individuality and that all all got fucking bulldozed so that way Quentin could have a damsel in distress. Precisely. Can we and- go back to when we thought, when I theorized, I just want to talk about it again, that Wilhelmina was a secret cuckoo sister. There was actually going to be six of them. And I know it doesn't mean, I know they're not the Spice Girls anymore, but like, I don't know where the W fits in, but I would figure out a way to make an acronym with those letters. That was way more interesting cuckoos than this. I agree. And, you know, to your point, TK, that you could reasonably see them in a book like Marauders, if Marauders was good. I also could see them in a book like Marauders, if Marauders was good. And one of the things that really sticks out to me is Ben Percy's very singular, isolated sense of character sort of reverberates through his sense of book. And I don't know if that's because his heart lies more powerfully in being a novelist. And even though novels can have a collaborative element, as many of our comic writers that are also novelists have said of their novel work when they've been here in interviews, it is much more solo work. And I wonder if that sort of solo mentality relates back to the development of characters because I don't know what I'm supposed to get from what feels like Quentin Choir retreading some very familiar ground at the end of Riot at Xavier's which you know I joke all the time is the most perfect X-Men arc of all time Eh, I'm pretty sure it is but you know it ends with Quentin's mind being shattered and that all comes due in the pages of Here Comes Tomorrow which we then get followed up on in some fraction Brubaker era to serve and protect 
Manifest Destiny style backup. It finally gets realized in Schism and everything since Schism has been sort of, and it's weird because I don't think it's the simplification, right? I love Quentin, but I like, I like him much more as somebody that I can root for, but he is kind of going through the paces of someone else's journey and someone else's war. I don't know that this feels like Quentin Quire's natural evolution of character. This feels to me like someone who perhaps grew up when Quentin Quire was introduced's evolution of male character. And the problem that that creates is that now we are facing a very different sort of male evolution, and there is nothing wrong with the stories that have come before. But if Quentin Quire is meant to represent a believable 20-year-old super genius, I don't believe he would stand in the shoes of men who failed at these sorts of toxic masculine schemes 25 years ago. I do want to note, I actually find something about this issue quite fascinating to talk about Quentin's psyche, and that him using husks to fight people, and like the ramifications of that, of him literally embodying the people that he sees as powerful, and people he looks up to, and you know, there's a whole, you know, conclave of people in there that you're like, that's very fascinating. I actually think it's a very unique way to explore Quentin trying to find himself and find his own identity, and what that kind of means in terms of self-care in terms of in terms of self-care for men what it turns it means for him to confront his emotions and feelings i wish that we actually got a lot more of that because i think that form of storytelling is way more fascinating to me and to to talk about Quentin's journey as opposed to what we got, which I don't know if this conclusive part of Quentin's arc feels satisfying. Did we follow the tradition? Not that everything has to be traditional, but did we follow the story beats to make it satisfying? We look at Quentin's wants versus needs. What does Quentin Quire want? What does Quentin Quire need? Did he did he get there? I don't think so. I don't think Quentin Quire ended with a satisfying character arc for X Force because we never really addressed those wants and needs well i think the good news is it's probably probably gonna see him again pretty soon this did not feel like the epic end that maybe it was intended to maybe it's all very tongue-in-cheek and we all know that he's coming back i think one of my other problems too though was that this feels like another thing that's actually about logan and about logan and gene like this is the child that logan and gene never had the fact that he references not just how Logan has been trying to help him grow up, but how Jean has, when we haven't seen Jean in this book in forever. And she did give him some great advice at one point, but it wasn't really, it was romantic advice. You know, he says, I feel like Marvel Girl light. She was not really showing him how to be Marvel Girl, which... Personally, I would have rather seen a lot of that than how to be Logan's protege. But, you know, we know we've seen Percy fascination with Logan. Of course, that's just all over the place. And I've grown to really enjoy that. I have a certain love for Logan and Jean, too, in the right context, which we're mostly allowed to believe that that context is here. So it's fine. But uh, he's not their child. He is not the, the groundwork for me really was not laid for this is the particular youngster that these two have even unofficially kind of adopted and decided to raise and show their ways. They are all on this team that commits war crimes for the ex-CIA and sometimes they help him do that better. 
And it just felt like these last few moments where he's reckoning with what he's learned from these two in that way that's like, oh, my my mentors, my pseudo mom and dad. It just like, especially with Gene's lack of presence and agency in this book, it really didn't work for me. And it was a bit of a disservice to how obvious her role could, how much more her role could have been for this story. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up, you know, him as their child and, you know, that Gene Logan relationship because this is the one book where we've been getting the majority of that. Like when we talk about them in the polycule and how, oh, look, we see Scott and Gene as couple and oh, look, we see Logan and Gene and we see Scott and Emma. Different writers are definitely focusing in on that more. And Percy's the one who gave us, you know, Gene finding Logan in the hot tub, mm-hmm. um, you know, when she was looking for a little something. This is the one that has given us those moments to remember that. Logan Gene is a thing now. Um, but I, I kind of more struck by what Nico was saying and remembering, you know, when we go back to who Quentin Quire is as a character, that really that pre-schism, post-schism um, depiction of him, Percy's very much evolving and growing up the post-schism underachieving prodigy that Quentin, you know, was illustrated as for a long time. And I mean, that's fair in a sense, but it leaves out so much of the, you know, Gen X anarchist, you know, the the rage against the machine Quentin that he was created as, you know, that was originally there because there's there's a lot more angst and trauma and, you know, anger that, you know, needs redirecting and focusing as opposed to just the, you know, the the weight of potential that, you know, we've seen him have to kind of overcome with Phoebe. Like Phoebe's been helping him out in a, you know, teen rom rom-com kind of sense and you know but the evolution of quentin choir should really be more slc punk why did black tom go into this lake i'm sorry black tom is not dumb i don't know what it is about this current iteration of black tom that a lot of writers are making talk, him talking third person is fine but it feels like a lot of writers we talk about quentin choir dying a lot black tom has also died a lot and this character just has become this weird punching bag i'm sorry there there is basic survival instinct and intuition he would not go in this lake at all hey they're here to kill your queers happy pride so i mean cerebrax targeting black tom and cerebrax killing black tom the start and the end of that completely fine makes sense i think is really great i i do not like how that middle part how it actually happened and i think the problem is exactly what you said at the start of this people write black tom two ways and it's sort of what side of the black tom argument you're on a lot of us love a queer Tom Cassidy who has a relationship with Kane and they felt it was them against the world and they were victims of machinations and Tom kind of sucked but like they grew into it and now they're choosing to be together in this world and that's what some of us are looking for from it. other people are like no he's broken after all the tree stuff and you know look I'm never gonna forgive I will never forgive him for killing Sammy like that is something I will bring up a lot but I feel almost like this black Tom is an aspect of the character Tom Cassidy. I wish he'd get a new nickname, a new code name, because I'm not here to see, you know, him basically turned into a vegan Hodor. Mm-hmm. I'm here to see a queer man come into his own 
And I would really like it if it wasn't at the cost of the quality of his mind. Yeah, and you know that Doug is getting this amazing renaissance with his connection to Krakoa, the person. I I even like the idea of the kind of disjointed linguistic quality to what Black Tom is experiencing and that for him it's not going to be the most straightforward communicative style to for him to relay what he senses from this world kind of disembodied from its personhood the personhood being what Doug interacts with there's a cool thing that could be done there but it it just feels like oh like the crazy man hears the voices but it turns out the voices are actually right like it just it's both trodden and also like it it does kind of disrespect the character in a lot of ways and it feels like it's just potential that's being left on the table for no reason how did domino's luck powers not come into play once this entire issue not that they have to come into play every single time but like is not the part of the fun of getting to use domino i guess we didn't have luck powers on our side this time mm. no we didn't roll high enough her wood arm is a lot of stand-in for like i don't really want to do how she flipped the coin and then that ended up being the explosion so wood arm i think domino like a lot of characters in x-force doesn't stand a lot of spotlight there's a book this is really comparable to this is comparable to aaron's avengers in that when you have 673 people in the book nine of them get dialogue each arc and that's the best you're gonna do looking for final thoughts on x-force just kind of going in on domino i think the thing that makes me sad at this point is that you know while i don't think she was written poorly this time and you know there was definitely a balanced perspective that we haven't gotten a spotlight on her since like issue four or something and even then she was drowning in the you know toxic colossus relationship stuff and we haven't gotten her really spotlighted you know shown given her own agency as a lead ever in the 29 issues so far um which makes me a little sad because she's such a great character Hey everybody, Nico back. Now, X-Men Red is such a powerful book. The discussion speaks for itself, so I don't want to vamp too much. I hope you guys enjoy the experience. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA on Twitter. That's Dazzler AOA, like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse, where you can find me lamenting about, did Bobby really use this good power to win or not? Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And I'm just going to say it, this intro data page on the three short stories about death, they're claiming that it was. And that would make me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Thread. And I hope you survive this intro issue unlike black panther i think i'm king of the now space colonizers what the fuck is up with the disrespect you are showing storm like the out and outness of it we are talking about x-men red number four al ewing is the writer on this stefano caselli is our artist we've got federico blee is our color artist and bc's ariana mayer as our letterer in production so like if you got physical what cover did you end up getting got the one 
one of Sunspot coming out of the egg all, all naked, covered in goo. I gotta say, this is one of the one times where I wish that they had just given us Bobby in his human form rather than his mutant form coming out of the egg. It's a little strange. Everybody else comes out looking regular and naked. Well, I mean, they come out looking like their true selves. So maybe at this point, him in his human form is actually a bit more work for him rather than just letting it all out. Yeah, maybe. I just know that it's an attempt to not put a naked Bobby DeCosta on the cover. I know, right? Which kind of makes me mad. Like, just go ahead and put this gorgeous brown man on the cover without much on. I've been getting the Hellfire variant cover. X-Men Red cover has Jean Grey in this, and it's a beautifully updated version of the miniskirt. I love it because it turns into a romper. The same kind of silhouette, but it updates it. The most inaccessible thing to wear while trying to superhero. A romper. At the very least, it's not a skirt. <laughs> I mean, yeah. at least I <laughs> could squat in a skirt if I needed to. Put me in a romper while I'm trying to do superheroes? Are you kidding me? Like, if I go to punch, the way those things rise up through your cracks and creases, like, she's going to split herself in two. Like, this is why hey, she's going to faint. At least she's not flying around with her vagina hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just going to be two lips on either side flapping in the breeze that's what a romper does gene being on the cover of x-men red as even as the variant edition kind of always brings up some questions like what would her connection to this book even be i don't understand why gene is on the cover give me people who are in this book if you're gonna give me like a hellfire variant cover give me somebody who's in this book give me aura serata doing hellfire gala like oh my god i need to see this look oh my god right Right? Like, maybe she has a big contact lens on that has beautiful holographs and shit on it. I don't know. Like, but, you know, give me give me something that has to do with the book. Don't give me the Starbucks of mutants, please. Yes. <laughs> I love the fact that they can use their paneling and their words and art so effectively that it honestly feels like a 30-page book every single time. Yeah. It's dense, but it's so good. Great economy of storytelling and, like, incredible pacing. Because you never feel like you're rushing through a bunch of stuff. You never feel like you're getting dumped with a bunch of stuff. But it just, like, it reads smoothly as a story. And by the time you're done, you're like, wow, did I just read, like, a whole arc of comics? Yeah. This book in its intro does something to me me that's a little different than what I've seen before. Like, this really establishes damn, this takes place right after the last issue of Marauders. It really canonizes that Iska did help Magneto win through Roberto's. No, the fuck she didn't. <laughs> At least that's what she thinks. Or Serata, who literally her power is to blink you out of existence. She is an Omega-level mutant who sits in the seat of law. She is not going to be a slouch. And an Omega-level mutant, like that who can blink you out of existence that was the specific word that was used can probably see everything that you have touched everything that has touched you your influence where your existence stands amongst the timelines and i'm wondering if she can actually erase across timelines and really be that kind of that powerful as a mutant she's also been trained for like what decades centuries in iraqan law 
Like if if anybody would be impartial and and very willing to go, you fucked up and you broke laws. She literally said, no, nothing happened. There was nothing here that changed the outcome of this fight. And to, to say that Iska's power is the reason Magneto won is to absolutely discount Magneto. He is an insanely powerful mutant who has been through a lot of shit and is ruthless when he needs to be. He came in with a plan. He executed that plan. I honestly, I don't think Tarn had much of a chance with a very determined Magneto coming into that ring. Oh yeah, I like to agree. Whatever plans he had were absolutely scrapped by this. Oh yeah. This conversation that we see in the start between Iska and mainly Magneto and Aura Serata jumps in about her bringing up very valid questions about should Krakoans be able to sit on the great ring of Arako, especially since Krakoans in general are all able to be resurrected, whereas Arakans in general are like, fuck resurrection, when I die, I die. Yeah, should another culture have life appointments that last beyond their lives, somebody else's ruling council? Should there be life appointments? This is a question I think we all need to ask ourselves right now. Well, Orserata more finely said, we get that some of us will come back. What we don't like is when you're using mechanisms to bring yourself back that basically mean, oh yeah, you get a quick round trip versus you had to work to come back. They understand that some mutants can fight their way back from hell. We've seen it in the past. What they don't like is the instant, I died five minutes later, hey, I'm back. And they're like, yeah, you're you're really not processing this. You're not trying to work through this. They're pointing it out as a form of privilege. They're saying that there's no cost to their high position. If you're worried about dying and you want to keep living, like they accept the cost of their position. They accept that every move they have to make has to be made care. I love that line. We are not afraid of a life that ends. I think this is incredibly badass. That said, I don't agree. Give me immortality. I love that this is an issue about like three of our favorite people being like, fuck no, I don't want to live forever. I have decided that immortality is out. And I'd be like, you could make that decision at any stage in your immortal life is all I'm saying. (laughs) It's very cool that these mutants in particular are having these questions because like Magneto and Storm, I absolutely buy this for them, especially given that Storm has never died. This can also be kind of turned into a a look at social issues of being able to choose one's own end time. Between Marauders and X-Men Red, they're finally asking the hard question. That's such an important question with Xandra piece, especially because then you've got a human mutant Yar hybrid who would, if we allow her to be resurrected and consistently sit on the throne, we've got human interests in the Shi'ar Empire. It's a little bit different because she's actually from the Shi'ar Empire, whereas you would have also Magneto and Storm just forever sitting on the Great Ring because they can't die. You know, plus the bit with wrong side wrong slide now oh, wrong slide yeah hey wrong slide is the breakout character of 2022 last year it was Taya. Yeah. this year wrong slide he's saying once i die here i want to die in other world and i want to let another version of me be able to come out he was just like i was made from an accidental death that created an amalgam when i die i want to shuffle the cards again and let somebody else have a chance at this wondrous thing called life and i was like oh my god that is so amazing what if he came out like a geode think of if like all the different 
different configurations of like rocks and whatnot. But if he came out as different rocks or crystals each time he was resurrected. That would be really weird, but really cool. But like with all of these questions of death going on in this issue, it still manages to be a pretty fun issue. And like, yes, it's a heavier than normal issue, but it's not totally weighed down. We do get some really, really great moments like something I have been waiting to talk to Raven with for a while. The confrontation between Aurora and T'Challa. Love that Storm's like, yeah, nice try spying on me. You were said you were gonna stop lying to me. It's not about like the government. It's not about Krakoa and Wakanda. God damn it! Like, speak me like a man. And I really like that. Of course, she knew that Gentle was spying on her. I love how she's like, you know, beyond all of this, I know how you are. I just wanted the man I loved to not lie right to my face. I really wish we had gotten a full view of his face on that one. That's like the only thing that I wish we'd got not this shit that we didn't where he's just like <gasps> it is good to see them interact and it to be more on a level playing field I know that a lot of times T'Challa has always come from a place of superiority even to the beautiful goddess that is Storm and I love to see her coming back and saying I just hope that you wouldn't do this I don't even know where to begin with the amount of anger T'Challa causes me from the inception of T'Challa and Storm being married Storm put in the work to actually get to know the person she was with. She invested a lot of her time and resources mentally and emotionally. She invested herself in in her world and he consistently treated her with disregard and disrespect as if she was just a tool to be worked rather than a person to be loved. And when she kept being disrespected, he basically divorced her as if he was dismissing a servant. And that was honestly her wake up call that T'Challa as a black man did not see her as a person, as a black woman. And the levels of disrespect that he has consistently shown her is rather galling. Because it's not just misogyny, it's massage noir. And in this issue, he shows the most utmost disrespect to a woman who knows him better than he knows himself. Not only did he send a black man in to spy on her, he acted as if she wouldn't know that he had been sent as a spy, that he was a spy, and who sent him. Like, And when he treated her as, as, as if she wouldn't know this, it was huge disrespect. But what was worse is he lied to her like a child. He lied to her face as if this mother of earth and storm would not know. He absolutely acted like a child and lied. And he didn't even have the chutzpah, the guts, the balls even to show up in person. He showed up via hologram as he has done so many other times, especially in recent history with Storm. And it is beyond disrespect. I cannot stand Black Panther. And honestly, the people who stand him have shown me for a very long time their misogyny and their misogyny noir, and I don't find it cute. I really love the interaction between T'Challa and Storm in the next scene as well. Uh, right after this. Oh god, yes. Because like when the, when Oracle is like, Empress Zandra Naramani of the Shi'ar is dead, and Storm literally goes, no. <laughs> Which isn't her, isn't her going, oh no, it's her going, no, she's not <laughs> and T'Challa just being like I 
had not heard, which I like don't believe straight up, but again, with his lion well, ass. It's very funny that yeah, Storm is like, no, but I'm being ambiguous here. And then right after that, T'Challa's like, hmm, is there a solution we're not considering here? Can Kokoa bring her back? And it's like, it's a little bit of like, hey, and no, he I know snitched. He snitched like a little bitch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, hey, like maybe I'm suggesting that Kokoa do this nice thing and that would improve relations between us. But you know, it's definitely T'Challa just being like, did you already do it, Storm? <laughs> no, 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 no. He snitched because some of them did not know. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Some of them didn't know about that technology. He snitched to them. He like made sure everybody knew Krakoa's business. That is the most bitch ass move ever. Hulkling had to have known, right? Because his mother-in-law-esque character came back through and, and you know, kind of made the waiting room. So she probably told her son. I don't know that he does. Yeah, I don't think we can trust that. Like, Skull Resurrection was mystical, magical resurrection. And I think that's how like, the Avengers as well. So I don't know that Hulkling actually knows this. But, like, definitely, like, Dick Ryder doesn't know that. And I love his response to it, by the way, because I don't think he's right. I think Orbis Stellaris is completely right here. I know that Orbis Stellaris has ulterior motives and anti-mutant sentiment. But Orbis Stellaris is like, oh, we don't want an immortal dictator on the brutal, like, dominating intergalactic Shi'ar Empire throne. No, thank you very much. We will protest this in every way possible. And I'm like, you're actually completely right. Right. And Nova is just like, mm, I don't know, I was a cop and I don't think I like the sound of that. No, I'm for resurrection. Let's go. I don't think Oracle, possibly Hulkling, Orbis Stellaris, and Dick Ryder knew about the resurrections, but like T'Challa just basically outed Krakoa's ace in the hole, as it were. He put a state secret out there that might have been secluded to Earth for at least a little while longer and breached at a later point in time. No, he literally just snitched to the far corners of the universe. How funny do you think it is that like pretty much the entire galaxy already knows that Krakoa has resurrection protocols but like Earth itself does not or did not until very recently? Well, I mean Earth loves to marginalize people so It was just like Earth humans are like the only people in the known universe who don't know about this at this point I guess they do now. Ben Ulrich did get his story and Cyclops leaked it which I'm gonna love the ramifications of this. That was increasing my respect for Cyclops leaking that information. There's a line-wide rejection of like the resurrection protocols suddenly going on and like the idea of the quiet council as it is and i'm really grateful for it i mean this wasn't something that could be sustained long term you'd become very stale very quick but maybe it was that they were thinking longer term than some of us and going okay we need a problem that's actually going to be a problem and so they're looking at systematic problems now not just villain of the week which i love i love all of this death talk in immortal leaders you know, sort of piggybacking off of Immortal X-Men. I love how discussing this is really picking apart, like, the fact, like, that at first I didn't think of that the Quiet Council is, like, functionally that government for the rest of time because of the way they've set it up with their secret that binds them, you know, the Moira of it all. I love that. And I love what that could possibly mean for the Quiet Council since Storm sits on both councils and Storm and Magneto basically rejected their immortality in this issue. I love how there are echoes of the past when Storm and Magneto filled the Hellfire seat together and them on the Arrakan Council, you know, just kind of like we are of one mind on this. I love them being like great kings again, like back in the Hellfire Club days. I love how much Magneto and Storm, my two favorite X-Men characters, are extremely like interrelated in their thinking and in their planning. Like they come at problems from similar ways and they complement each other so much. So it's cool to see that they continued that relationship here on Arrakan and that they both made the same choice, which is 
is to destroy their backups. Because one, Magneto fears the idea of living forever and turning into a monster again, you know? And on the other, Storm is like, I have never died. Death has never been a fear for me. I think she's ready to die. I think she knows the natural order of things. Yeah, I don't know if that's the same thing as ready to die. I think, I know what you mean. I think she would accept death if it came to her naturally, because that's who Storm is. Like, she's ready to die when the time comes. But yeah. If it comes, I think she's prepared for it. And of all of the mutants, like, if she were to resurrect herself, I would not be at all bothered. Because if anybody's going to work through, say, like, the underworld or come back via mystical sources because her mother was from a bloodline of magic users, like, I could see her coming back as the maelstrom or as, you know, an absolute embodiment of a storm goddess. So, yeah, like, that makes sense that she would be unbothered and unfazed by destroying her backup and just going about things the natural way. I think it's important also to talk about the privilege that Magneto and Storm both have in this particular instance of being like Omega powerful mutants. Like they absolutely have the privilege to be like, I'm going to destroy my backup. I'm not afraid of a life that ends. Like, yeah, you say that, but Magneto, you're the most powerful magnet user on this or any planet. Storm, you are unkillable. The reason that you're not afraid to die is absolutely because like, who's going to do it? Same with Magneto. So it's like, I respect and I love this for their characters. Like absolutely makes sense for both of them. But it's also like Pixie and Bling are not like... privileged enough to think that they will live through the mutant revolutions to come just because of who they are. But like Storm and Magneto absolutely are. These are two mutants who were not afraid of dying before resurrection. Unlike the vast majority of them. Honest John does not have the privilege of like destroying his backup, right? (laughs) Because he's going to die the next time somebody comes to town. Another reason why this totally makes sense to me for Storm as a character is because, I mean, we just had pretty much four giant-sized issues that basically were Storm not wanting to die and fighting to live, even though she knew if she died she would just be resurrected through the croco and resurrection process she still fought she was life and that like i think is so core to her character she is going to do whatever she has to do to survive because she loves life but like y'all said like when she knows when her time's come her time has come so let's get into magneto and his journey in this issue how do we feel about a magneto who basically is saying you know we've tried this before it's not working. I came here to, to basically, you know, like, curl up and die, but now I've got something to fight for. Oh, for fuck's sake. I had to roll my eyes just a little bit at his very deep, thoughtful, insightful monologue about death and how he's too grand and blah. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, Magneto is a little bit up his own ass, which, I mean, that reads true for his character. It's like the best. But I... <laughs> Oh, he's, he's like edge of being your Allan Poe with how, you know, uh, it, I feel myself in autumn and I fear the winter. The fuck, my dude? Hey, let people <laughs> speak in poetry if they want to. Oh my god. But, but it tracks true for his character, so I enjoyed that. In that whole scene where Magneto's talking, Lactuka is just watching. What are they doing? They're just knowing. They're just knowing at him. Lactuka earlier says, I don't want to get involved with galactic politics, even though I'm in the seat of the heavens and the celestial things and space, because that's beneath us. It's like, so what warrants your response, Latuka? If Latuka is a knower, then that means that she probably can see intent, possibly where somebody is going to go with what they're going to do. Like, she's probably an exceedingly powerful but covert telepath. I think most of the the council members seem to center around knowing the truth of things. Yeah, I think that's correct. A lot of the council members have that. And Magneto knows the truth loss, so I guess he fits very well for his seat. 
Magneto sitting on the seat of loss is very apt for him. I mean, his whole life has been defined by loss and tragedy. Do we think him sitting on the seat of loss will help him transcend it? Or do you think he will use the power of that loss to help him do what he has to do to survive? I honestly think he's a very good addition to the ring. I think he is doing the actual work to understand the people of the land. He's going to, of course, it's going to take more time for him to gain their trust. And we're still going to have to see like, okay, how's he going to play this? But I honestly think he's a really good addition. And the seed of loss is something he needs because I do believe that he is going into the winter of his life. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Damn, this man has been in the winter of his life since like 1963. It's crazy. We love a winter fan. I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah, he's he's great, but man, it's crazy when Magneto's like, I'm getting old. I'm like, man, you really are. <laughs> he's just now starting to like really get age and lines on his face. I love that that more and more artists are doing that, where they're actually putting some age to Magneto's face. Yeah, and Magneto you know, fits very well for the Seat of Loss poetically, but it's interesting because the Seat of Loss is like the thing that's consulted when a battle is lost, right? So hopefully Magneto doesn't have a lot to do. <laughs> But we have seen Idil's visions of the future of Arako, and it doesn't look very pretty. Nor does Krakoa, given what Destiny is saying. Destiny and Idil need to really talk to each other about this. But Magneto might, might get some great usage out of the Seed of Loss soon, then. Mm-hmm. He's a person who's rebuilt the mutant nation a couple of times over. So if anybody knows how to rebuild after a loss, it's going to be Magneto. Very true. And if anybody knows how to keep a loss as the core identity of their being and feel grateful for it every day of their life, it is also Magneto. And I I think sometimes that's necessary. Well, you know, he's an emo. What else is he going to do? I would want better for Magneto. I want him to move past, but it's not a thing he's interested in. Moving past would be like letting go. And I don't, that's what he wants. You know, he can't do that because if he has to let go of his loss, then he lets go of Anya. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely one of the many losses for sure. I think that's why that loss is so cemented and hardwired into him is the loss of his daughter and then the Holocaust. A layer upon a layer upon a layer of just, it's like these big moments that are just compounding each other. Oh, what about all these idiots telling Storm what she can and cannot do with Zandra? I love it. I love it. I had had to laugh. This council thought that they could tell Storm what Krakoa could do about Zandra and acting as as if Storm and the mutants wouldn't know that Sandra already passed. I did really appreciate the bit where Oracle is like, yeah, I, I happened to catch the side blast. And Storm was like, why do you think you happened to catch it? It was on the way to her dad, like the most powerful telepath in the known universe. Like, obviously she was communicating with him. And I'm like, do they talk though? I mean, like it's, it's she's absolutely right. But I'm like, I never see any anything between the two of them. But it is nice to see that Xavier steps up for at least one of his kids. I absolutely will resurrect Xandra, even at the cost of my own life. I'm bleeding from my nose how hard I'm working to resurrect her. And then it's like, Legion, I don't care for him. And David dies. He's like, <laughs> please do not resurrect him yeah. at please all please under any him. circumstances. Like, talk about the favored child. Yeah. And then like, he's like, Proteus, I know you're not my son, but I'd like you to have a perfect <laughs> version of my body. Please walk around. <laughs> right. 
He's like, Essex, can you have a glitch in your computer that gets rid of David's DNA? Please. <laughs> David's like, fuck you, I have other meats. Yeah, worst, worst dad ever, unless you're Xandra. In which case, cares <laughs> when you die. Oh, God, right? She's the empress to an empire. Of course he's gonna resurrect her. Why can't you be like your sister? She was an empress. Like, what the fuck? Just because you hooked up with a horny bird lady? <laughs> hey. He did more than hook up with the bird lady. He got Jar married and just on Earth, he's like, huh, 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 I don't know who you are. New phone, who dis? It's like, bitch. New planet, who dis? <laughs> I love that Magneto is just playing around with this little tiny, like, Funko Pop Xavier head backup copy thing. Like, I, I know that they all have to look like Cerebro because Xavier's ego can't take it otherwise if they don't have his main initial and his helmet on it. But he's just like, <laughs> playing around with this little Xavier head for a while. Like, it's very cute until he crushes it, of course. Oh, yeah. Is that kind of like him, like, saying, like, hmm, I'm gonna finally get over this breakup? Yes. Yeah, it distinctly is. He's like, I've got a new Lee Forrester, the Fisher King. <laughs> he does. He, all, he really does. All he needs now is for Cyclops to date Fisher King. <laughs> I don't need to ever see that. Like, just let them be friends and old men together. He's winding down. Let him not be in yet another relationship, because you know Charles is not a gracious ex. But I think, like, him and the Fisher King, maybe he's not so much like a relationship, not like they're like, ooh, we're gonna build a life together. But they're like, hey, you know what? When we're horny, let's get together and fuck. I see them as confidants. I like the confidants between them. You mean like ace lovers? Because these guys <laughs> Okay, I can, I can work with that. I can that's, work that's with that. That's what a confidant is. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> There's... Yeah. <laughs> I never thought that Magneto bones in general. Like, I think he's just interested in the intellectual romance with Xavier, which has got to be getting boring mm-hmm. by now. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why he's moved on to the Fisher King. They do make really good platonic friends as well. Like, they're super dope as a team. So it looks like we're getting two new additions to this book. We're getting Wrong Slide, hell yeah. And it looks like we're also getting Dick Ryder as well. Like, what do we think of Wrong Slide and, and Nova for anybody who doesn't know who Richard Ryder, Dick Ryder is? I like wrong slide. I'm actually kind of here for it. I want to see what they do with this character because it looks like they're going to turn out to be a lot more intellectual than I originally thought they would be. I'm ready for it. I love wrong slide. I love this idea. I love where this is going. I love how this has been set up. I'm here for every minute of it. I'm kind of excited, but scared to see Dick Ryder join the book. Like I really love Al Ewing's version of Dick Ryder from the... Guardians of the Galaxy, but I also don't love the idea of a space cop being in the diplomatic zone of Araco. It's just something sits wrong with me on that. Oh, don't worry. Oro doesn't trust him as far as she could lightning bolt his ass. Well, actually, even less so, because she could probably do it for distance. Yeah, I love Wrong Slide. I'm a deeply a huge fan of him. He seems scatterbrained and not exactly there before, but it seems like he's settled into somebody who's like deeply poetic, in touch with his feelings, and full of wonder and amazement about what life is and the earth around him. I, I love him. I think he's great. I think he will make an awesome addition to the Brotherhood of Mutants on Araco. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, it'll be interesting to see what our next 24-30 page issue is going to look like, because it is entitled War. 
war. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. X-Men Red is really escalating very fast, and I'm very excited to see what happens to the rest of it. But mm-hmm. like between it and the, the arms race that X-Men Red and Sabretooth and Immortal X-Men have going on right now between them for the plot of like ever-escalating stakes for the, the mutant kingdoms as they basically are at this time, like it's, it's frightening and it's exciting. Mm-hmm. I also really appreciate that they have put the emblems of all the different books in the uh in the lower left hand corner yes like i'm I'm slowly memorizing basically this the these new emblems these new symbols and i swear to god if there's an actual lexicon for for cohen alphabet out there i think i really want to learn it i long ago learned how to sight read cohen from from the early days of the dot of x and i've just been doing it ever since so i sometimes forget that like people were like fucking focused on that at the very beginning and even if you were like it'd be very easy to forget Mm. I loved how compact this book was. Everything seemed to have been in place for a reason. We didn't talk enough about how we didn't talk anything about how beautiful the art and coloring and lettering is in this issue, which I think really speaks to the complexity of the story. But this is a art team, visual team that it has on the same level as what the writer and the amazing Al Ewing is bringing. I I just, it all flows so well together. To me, this and Immortal are are my two flagship titles for the X-Line. Like, in my mind, if you think of the X-Line, it's these two. Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Jerry Duggan's X-Men has definitely been a crazy ride starting with last year's gala, and here it is. We're coming to another gala. There's another vote. There's going to be a new team, and we discuss a lot of that in this next segment. We hope you guys enjoy, and don't forget, you guys can check the show out three times a week every week. That's MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and XI4P Friday premiere episodes. You can check me out over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And you can check out my original work in Young Men in Love, this awesome anthology, that just came out with amazing Marvel creators like Terry Bloss, Cena Grace, Anthony Oliveira, and more. Enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, Judgment Day is a coming, and we'll see ya. And welcome back to X's for Podcasts. I'm one of your co-hosts, Arturo. And today we're going to be talking about X-Men number 12. And I'm joined by my good friends. Hi, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me at comic underscore canary on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm Steven. You can find me on Twitter at Stephen of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. Hi, I'm Broadway. And I will be riding a naked mole rat to the Supreme Court protest. You can find me on Twitter at bway3rd amen and i'm arturo you can find me at mr toy box on twitter and instagram and uh, like i said we're covering x-men number 12 by the dream team of writer jerry dugan pepe laraz on art mate gracia on color and clayton cowell's letterer and it is such a strong lineup and such a strong issue we were all blown away at the end of uh, issue 11 when it was revealed that dr stasis was none other than mr sinister maybe but with a little black club instead of a red diamond on his forehead i 
personally really liked it. And I'm not the biggest Cyclops fan, but I absolutely adored Cyclops in this because like he's gone through so much in so few issues. I thought it was really fun that he was able to just just kick his butt. It was really nice. I agree. uh, Being able to see him do it essentially on his own for the most part. I do not like the Sinister. (laughs) I mean, who likes Sinister really? And you know, at the end of the day. <laughs> Sassy Sinister is only slightly different. Slightly. They're still really terrible people, but he is a good villain. This one, you know, he's he's just less sassy, so it was a lot nicer to see Psy kick his ass. I'm really interested to see where this goes. I'm really intrigued by the fact that Club on his head, you know, obviously there's like four suits, and this Sinister is so diametrically the opposite of the one on Krakoa, and so I'm curious, like, if they were, like, cardinal directions, if, like, Krakoa and Sinister is north, and this one is south, like, how, how do east and west shake out? Well, and this Sinister seemingly stripped of powers. Sinister now is nowadays has, like, a grab bag of powers, basically, but mostly, like, the little bit of shape-shifting is kind of, like, the go-to and some, you know, uh, a, a bit of telepathy, I think. Yeah, yeah, he usually has telepathy, I think telekinesis, shape-shifting, and eye lasers are generally sometimes yeah (laughs) but this sinister you know claims that that he in fact is the original he is nathaniel essex and he has not you know polluted his his dna with vile mutant strains so kind of interesting i'm happy that this character i this is just such a cool and maybe inevitable you know conclusion with sinister just having all of these damn clones like it makes sense that there'd be a rogue one or maybe this is the original who knows we still have this sinister on the board at the end of the issue you know we see him uh hanging out with his with his orcus buddies but we've still got sassy sinister waiting over on krakoa for for cyclops to come home and deal with him so it's going to be interesting to see how that all shakes out we also get to see our boy sink having a nice well actually sink in the in the first act he was just a little bit of backup there for cyclops we see him kind of shine later i can't remember the full sort of history of mr sinister but there is in his like backstory an issue with his kid. I think that's sort of the origins of his, you know, kookiness and, like, there's something about, like, him trying to, like, extend his kid's life or save his life. I don't remember exactly. I have to go back, but um, it seems to be related to that. I got the sense that the kid might be a mutant because he says explicitly, I'll fix what's broken in you. Like, he's a, a Victorian descendant of I mean, Artie and Leech. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got the same vibe, B-Way. He's definitely a mutant, for sure. And it feels like, unlike our Sinister, that has driven him again in the like, opposite direction, that instead of mutating himself and adding mutant genes and all of that, it's to, like, fix that problem instead of seeing it as the next step in human evolution, or, like, a way to, like, save the kid, which is interesting. I'm getting real, like, gene-splicing kind of vibes. Like, that old sci-fi narrative where someone, um, kind of splices their personality into and you have the evil one and the good one well this one we have the comically sassy one and the more serious one kind of thing is kind of the vibes that i'm getting off of it i'm still waiting for uh for a lady sinister or what was her name miss sinister Sinister, yes i I, I feel like like that's that's maybe an inevitability and i'm all for it i would love to see her be like the queen of red hearts or something i actually really loved i think her name was what claudia yeah i 
I loved her. I thought she was a good villain and she kind of like invigorated like sinister as a villain for me. So I'm a little sad that we lost her at some point, but I do hope she comes back. Yeah, I, I feel like it's almost inevitable. And and I hope that we still keep our sassy hot mess, you know, of a sinister around. Meanwhile, in game world, we open up to this incredible splash page of Wolverine, Laura Kinney, just tearing up Jean Grey, then on to Rogue. Did you all fall for it? Did you think this was what was going on? I had like a feeling that we were being tricked just because I had, I in preparation of reading this one, I reread 11 and then ran read 12. And so I kind of remembered a little bit more what was going on that they mentioned that it's like there was some sort of plan. So I didn't think it was going to be like a total illusion, which I think is hilarious. But I did like kind of think it's just like, oh, this is a trick somehow. Yeah, I was of the same mind. But definitely when Rogue got murked, I was like, oh, okay, like this can't be real. When I did my reread, I really like took in what Polaris does in this illusion, which is terrifying. I didn't realize that like, I don't know, I guess it just didn't really sink in that like that ball, that red ball uh, in that middle panel is like blood is just like squished rogue that really got me and that's when i was like okay there's no way that like gene would allow this to happen it was so nice to see gene do like telekinesis i just love gene so much and i'm so excited to see her like do stuff again yeah and for me for me like morrison kind of put that in canon like that she could like get telekinetic on a molecular level oh yeah no no he definitely did he definitely did i i personally don't always love that just because I believe that a person would need like this insanely like supercomputer mind to be able to do such things but well, it's also and, a comic book so. and, <laughs> no and like they, they've also kind of gone through to pains to clarify that she is an omega level telepath not a telekinetic so you know whatever we're playing fast oh, and yeah. loose with well see that's powers. what I was just about to say they even remind us in the text they're just like two omegas um, are better than one like, yeah exactly two omegas are better than one and with rogue helping her out i mean i feel like them sharing the power kind of i don't want to say cheapens it the trick but it it explains it in like a convenient way it was cool to watch i loved the kiss on the cheek i'm a sucker for like yeah for any queer moment that i can absolutely have i will take but well um, it's just like that that was such a signature move of rogues and it was often like you know done to males and you know at their surprise and then at their dismay (laughs) cool to see like rogue like in control like she's not sucking away anyone's you know uh, health or or, or, or mentality or whatever it's like rogue's in control and she's in a good place I feel like for me, I, I mean, Lorna's not a character that, like, overall I'm super familiar with. Like, the Krakoa era was definitely my first time really getting to know her as a character. I think that this X-Men run, to me, is, like, the other side of Leah Williams' X-Factor, where, like, she was kind of working through a lot there, and now she seems to be just in, like, a much better and kind of cooler, not just, like, you know, aesthetically, but, like, personally, just, like, more level place. She seems 
like more sure of herself and so like you know showing up late with her coffee and all of that is just like yo i'm vibing and i kind of like that for her because i feel like very often her personality is built on being unsure of who she is and why she is whereas here it seems like she's like no i'm good like wherever fate takes me that's fine i guess i just wish i i had more of that journey uh mm-hmm. earlier you know what i mean to I, get to this yeah, point. i agree with that yeah so because like she wasn't not sure of herself at the same time because she did create that beautiful spire you know the boneyard and whatnot but you're right like she is absolutely way more confident i just i guess i just really miss the slice of life moments and i i really would love those outside of combat you know I, right like that's one thing I, I will say like it's only been 12 issues and i guess you know this is a byproduct of the way comics work nowadays you're not going to get as many you know quiet moments and this issue they went to the mall like and yeah. i miss that like i mean to to a fault like i think that you know that's something that we lose in this you know i'd rather see jerry do you know a hundred issue run on x-men and have that room to you know to breathe instead we're yeah. one story that we saw getting a nice slow burn and a really great payout in my opinion was with ben urich the the reporter for the daily bugle oh, loved that i absolutely loved how they handled this as as you guys remember when cyclops fell when and then obviously resurrected as captain koa um sink had used you know gene's telepathy and wiped the memory from ben's mem you know from ben's head so that to protect everybody and i just love that they that cyclops was like okay yeah but we're that does that makes us no better than you know than the bad guys or than just other people that are you know other councils like kind of throwing shade at the quiet council like we're if we're gonna do this we're gonna do this right and they did it and uh i think it's kind of cool that that the x-men you know this the the big secret of the immortal x-men is now out of the bottle yeah these are great moments for both sink and scott and i really love the way in which this ben uric situation allows for both of them on two i guess it's not parallel if they meet back in the middle but like two separate tracks like it allows them to have character development around this incident on two separate tracks that then fold back together right like scott is trying to deal with this as an experienced superhero also not a politician but a public figure and sink is trying to deal with it as somebody who's been functionally at war for 500 years and is now getting a second chance to be a hero and you're watching the two of them navigate that problem i think that's really cool and i think that their brotherly relationship is a kind of standout aspect of this book it's not something anything anyone expected and i think it also makes up for the fact that young cable is now gone that scott gets to mentor somebody but it's not in a paternal way it's like a younger brother who's also technically older than you and has a lot to share and i think that is really beautiful especially if you layer on kind of metaphors of like marginalized communities and and cross-generational relationships and learning from each other i think that's a really beautiful component of this story I love it for Cyclops. I love it for Sync. So, well, let's, speaking of Sync and Cyclops, we see them reunited with the the ladies of the X-Men, the whole teams together. Again, like fucking Pepe Larraz, Marte Gracia, like the art, the colors, this battle. Oh my God. Yeah. There's a, the shot with Cyclops, Jean, and Sync is breathtaking. Like, yes. Yes. Uh. 
And even when they're coming in and Jean is leading, just like Sunfire, Sink, there's so much coloring that has to be done and details, and they're all done excellently. Uh, this book, I, it, it had a few misses for me, like in terms of the overall 12 issues, but the artist, like, oh, the, uh, the, the, the color, like everything has always been so on point for me. This was stunning. In this last battle, and, and you know, readers there or, or listeners, they're just fighting it looks like the mole man with some you know pretty standard issue mole people and a, <laughs> and a giant monster from underground which you know as he's wont to do and in this battle <laughs> which obviously you know there's it's not high stakes they're not fighting you know the high evolutionary or thanos like it's freaking mole man no big deal but there is such an absurd amount of exposition which sure it's all happening telepathically but come on um and basically half the team hands in their their two weeks notice yeah um, over half over half like yeah and it was like it was just maybe a little too neat for me i don't i didn't need every single one of those you know questions answered in this one battle especially because it wasn't even like they were having a conversation it's like well they are having a conversation but they're in the middle of this fight and yeah basically rogue looks okay rogue was the one that has me the most interested if you're following what's going on in knights of x it seems like rogue is going to be joining the the D party over there and i'm all for it that's where that's going we already got a little you know color of sunfire going to Araco. i also think that so one of the trailers for the judgment day event coming up has the whole destiny mystique family together including rogue and so i'm interested if she's going to be in immortal x-men or not but it seems like there's something kind of coalescing and i kind of like that in peak X office fashion, they're clearly talking enough about who needs to be where to make that fluid. And Wolverine. I, I wasn't happy about Wolverine's re- resignation. I will go on the record and say that Logan is the Wolverine on X-Force. He's doing good things over there. He's got his own book. I love having Laura Wolverine on this team. I thought she was perfect on this team. She has such a different vibe from actual Logan. But if it's just like we need to shake it up and we need to you know have people vote and like where the story's suffering a little bit you know for for the sake of meeting the quarterly you know marks and and whatever profit it's coming out very unfair to her as well i think because like we were saying there always should be a wolverine on the x-men team and she's been holding up that mantle really well but i feel like they don't really know what to do with her because it's like oh we have wolverine how do we do another wolverine and make her a unique and so I feel like they constantly have her in that pigeonhole of not knowing who she is, which I think so fair oh my gosh absolutely i agree with that and she is gonna be in exterminators which leah williams she is is. so sorry to be clear laura is gonna be in that book Uh, yes yes i knew what you meant right right yes no you're fine yeah we totally understood what you meant yes yeah me too i mean i was uh, listen i've been so on board with the team of dazzler boom boom and jubilee but i will gladly take laura on that team too that sounds so exciting to me yeah that sounds like a blast I just really, really loved his relationship with Monet, and I'm not normally like a shipper, but but I really, really loved them together, and was kind of hoping we would get some kind of reunion, even if they don't get back together in that way. So I no, hope- totally. And yeah. full disclosure, Laura Kinney is 
probably bisexual, if not full on lesbian. So like her being like, you know, with sync didn't exactly fit into my fantasy of, but I'm just saying there's like a thread there and it feels like, like that's not even a factor as far as if she's going to stick around or, or anything. And that's fine too. Like she doesn't, you know, she doesn't have to be on a team because, you know, she's got a crush or, or a crush has a crush on her or whatever, but you know, like that's part of X-Men though, like soapiness and corniness and flirting and, and yes. messy relationships yes. and hookups. Absolutely. Like slice of life stuff is what yeah. I live for for X-Men. Yeah. It yeah. is my soap opera of choice, my telenovela. We never got Laura walking in on her dad and her bosses. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted that so bad, guys. I did too, so bad. Even just like a little kind of quip about like if Cyclops came from the Summer's house, if Cyclops and Jean came from the Summer house, and just like a one-liner from Laura about her dad would have been perfect. Just that little like, yeah, you're hooking up with my dad, and right, like just is like, well aware. She has enhanced senses. She could have smelled him on them. You know what I mean? Uh, it was perfectly right. Exactly. Like that was that would have been great, B-way. Absolutely, friggin' lootly. Like I. Like, if she that. just sniffed and was like, is he doing well? Right, and, yes. You know, something like that, exactly. yeah. Exactly, oh yeah. God. That's one thing, like, Cyclops is definitely, in this whole, like, reconstruction of Cyclops, you know, post, and I know we don't really talk about the Phoenix Five, and, you know, all of that, and when he killed Professor X, and then when he was, you know, uh, considered a terrorist, and, like, all of this stuff that he had gone through, like, this new status quo, Scott, seeing him being content and capable and and confident and doing the right thing even when it's not the easy thing like he you know he and gene you know gene walked off the council and and he said no we're gonna do this because this needs to be separate from the council so even if the council is pissed about this and again i'm sure we're gonna see the ramifications of it and and it's not gonna be easy but the council has power and influence that's the problem that is the problem but this whole team was founded because in in defiance kind of of the council when when he said yeah the council needs to be here governing Krakoa that's that's for sure but the world also needs the X-Men team and those two things might not always jive. Let's be real here though. The council does have power, but who is one of the most politically powerful people on that council? It's Emma. Emma is not going to allow him to be taken off that team. Absolutely. Well, that's the thing. I'm very curious to see how Emma is going to respond to this whole thing. Because on one side, Scott's her bitch and <laughs> she's got to be there for him. But on the other hand, he did just do something that complicates things for Krakoa and um, mutants as itself though again she knows him very well and probably expected him to do this so she probably has a contingency plan for this I believe I can tell you right now Emma is going to be furious about this I see I imagine Emma reading the paper and being like that bloody man like what (laughs) because you know Emma would have no compunction to go down to the Daily Bugle and wipe everybody mind out floor by floor if she had to to protect Krakoa like you're right right. but she also didn't so I I'm kind of with Evelyn where she probably does have a contingency plan and yes maybe she's gonna be annoyed that she has to actually you know do it but she will because she is Emma and she's a boss ass bitch and you know what to punish Scott it's just an extra long edging session and then you know that's it I mean (laughs) 
opposite. Like punishing Scott is kind of also rewarding him in a way because you know Scott loves to be punished. Absolutely. It's going to be a problem at least with the gala. You know what I mean? Like that's like her thing and she's going to have to be dealing with that. The looming problem with the Eternals that Destiny has already put on the table. What is cool about this book is that that, you know, obviously they take the X-Men to Otherworld and Defiance of the Council um, in Ten of Swords and, you know, they start this book and it's like, ah, okay, they're going to be superheroes again and it's like, cool, but then they're running into the problem of being a, like a state, I, I don't want to say, I mean state-backed superheroes sounds very like propaganda-y in a really messy way, but like, well, they are with the backing of yeah. the state of Krakoa. They did have Captain Krakoa on the team for a bit, right. so you are right though. <laughs> You're not and wrong. I, I think it's an interesting tension that is... Uh, that changes a lot of the dynamics of the X-Men, like the, the core dynamics of the X-Men. It's not just, they're in the big leagues now in a way that like if, you know, the Avengers were backed by the U.S. government or by S.H.I.E.L.D. and they did something in defiance, they have to deal with those political questions even if they are not political officials. They are political agents in a way that's really powerful. But like, I don't know what they're going to do to Scott. Like they can't, they're not going to throw him in the pit. Like that's just not going to happen. Uh, but also Emma did vote for him to be Captain Krakoa. It's like they all did except Sinister. Uh, and like if the populace votes yes on Scott being on the team for making the hard decisions, what do they say? Sorry, you can't. No jet time for you? No treehouse time? Like what are they going to do if all of Mutantdom is like, no, we stand? I think Sink and Cyclops and Jean all together in one issue with the children of the Ooh, fun. Yes. I'm glad they're coming back. That was a that was a setup that didn't really go anywhere. Culminate in much. <laughs> yeah, that was like a you know a couple of issues of like, oh, okay, they're a big threat. I mean, again, that's like what Laura and and uh Sync were dealing with, but yeah, I'm I'm excited to see that. I'm excited to see who's gonna crash the Hellfire Gala, and I've got my bets. Are you guys ready with your your guesses? I... It's our favorite NFT queen. <laughs> yes i think it is none other than dr moira mctaggart yes i agree especially because she reaches out to stasis and sorry dr stasis and fei long in issue 10 or 9 i think there's like a data page with an email from her which she definitely just like typed in her mind or like on her like i don't know arm oh wait and did you did you all read uh, i think it was judgment day like a one shot yes that was crazy so yeah i i absolutely believe it's going to be i was so steaming mad because mary jane is one of my favorite fucking characters in comic books so i was really really scared for her but and i'm also sad that she's not actually going to be at the gala at this point but uh yeah i'm looking forward to seeing how that goes because she is taking her place right yeah or like puppeting her i don't think she's going full banshee oof Hopefully not. That was a little much for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was kind of funny to me. It was kind, so twisted. No, I thought it was hilarious. And it's just like, I mean, the disrespect of Banshee. Yeah. Like, I've she, watched too it, much you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre to be uncomfortable with people wearing other people's faces. Right. But it right. was really twisted to bring your ex-boyfriend over and then just like kill him and skin him and wear him to kill everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's kind of no, funny. Yeah. No that bitch boss. is crazy 
Izzy. She's like, I, you know, I know some people, I know Moira is a controversial topic, but I will stay on the record as saying, hey, we need a, a crazy, unhinged, big, bad villain. And I didn't see that it was going to be Moira. And that kind of makes it even better that it is. Like, I agree. There's something, there's like, there's something about it that is just so compelling. Um, especially with this, you know, collective with Orcus. We haven't seen Nimrod and Omega Sentinel in a while, but like this kind of cabal of, of post-humans and anti-mutant forces is going to be really interesting. And it's going to be interesting to see how Moira sit between the two because she is like a robo person, but she's not full Sentinel. Um, and I can't imagine her liking Nimrod considering like, you know, the thousands of years of fighting his existence. But also she's mad at the mutants for like kicking her out or trying to erase them. It, it's interesting. I, I think she makes a really interesting villain especially now that we've added in, you know, Phalong and Dr. Stasis to this, who all have these weird grudges against mutant kind. It really, like, ups Orcus. I, the, the, the one Orcus pedal that I am longing for is Valerie Cooper to, to rear her beautiful blonde head uh, and, uh, and, and try to spin the PR for You mean, for Orcus. you mean I'm Earthbound ready. human brand? I mean, listen, <laughs> Valerie Cooper, I, I, like, Valerie Cooper is a compelling character, in my opinion. She I, is. She is like, compelling. Like, her working with Orcus. I don't know. Or maybe she's, you know, maybe not. Any final thoughts? I know that people have kind of complex feelings about this book. One, because it's different than Hickman's run. But also, um, uh, I, I don't know. It, it has, like, a kind of classic sort of um, poppy superhero feel. I think that's what Kieran Gillen called, like, kind of pop superheroism um which i think for me was refreshing in contrast to the anthology style but i do think that jerry has done some really great work and at least from what i've heard in like interviews and things like that there is a vision and things that seemingly were left off the table are coming back and i do love that this is so interwoven into the other x books especially with x-men red and immortal x-men i don't know i like the book i'm one of those people like i don't usually have complaints about the books like overall like there's a lot of people especially on the bird app who like poo poo everything and it's the like bird app. i like am okay with like criticism i'm not above that i think sometimes this book gets like weird energy towards it and i'm like no i think it's a good book it's just doing something different but it's not you gotta like let the author do their thing and then reflect afterwards i just i'm happy that i feel like we're getting the best of of both worlds right where hickman comes in and does this huge paradigm shift you know similar to to morrison right where it's the x-men have gone global the x-men on the world stage the x-men as you know uh, as a a force in in the greater world around them uh the x-men out of the closet kind of so we get all that and we still have all that and we have the quiet council and we have krakoa and a nation state and all of that but then we also have you know the hero team which is kind of like um when whedon came in with astonishing and it was like okay all that morrison stuff is over now let's go back to being the superhero team and spandex and the x jet and whatever this isn't like okay one or the other it's it's like we're getting we're getting that and so much more with you know knights of x slash excalibur and other world and doing all the magic stuff and x-force and the new mutants and it's like just a freaking great time to be a fan yeah it's it's just been really really solid writing so far i think on this current run 
Ultimate of X-Men, and I've really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, uh, I have actually enjoyed it. I do think that where the places that it fell short for me was I just wanted more character moments, more slice of life. But otherwise, yeah, yeah, I did genuinely enjoy it. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I do think a huge reason why I love it so much is the art is just, to me, it's just on another level. (laughs) 